it's not for everybody. I think the thing that helps me is that the background I have because of my parents and sitting for so many paintings my father did. You know, I was the one of the common subjects for him. And the hardest moment as an artist is the first moment when you have a blank canvas and you've stretched it, you've stapled it, you've gessoed it with a few nice coats that make it pristine white. And then you have to choose a color. You have to choose a brush and a color. And once you get started, then the natural expressivity just comes out. It just starts to happen. But it's just that moment. It's a very difficult moment of trying to, what's the first step? And some folks just don't like that. And that I'm not saying I like that, but I've learned how to pass through that moment and just trust that it's gonna, it's going to start flowing, you know, down the road. It may not be the first step. It may not be the first eight steps. But eventually it's going to, a shape will take form and then you can kind of craft it, massage it, just like clay, you know, you have to, you're, you're working in a very nebulous place with no real boundaries. So you kind of have to slowly push it into a form that's going to work. That's the fun part about choreography is doing that. Welcome to Hello Atelier. I'm your host, Betsy Blodgett, and with me is producer Jonathan Getz. Hello. I'm so excited about this episode because we are finally stepping out of the world of visual art and into the world of performance. Our guest today, retired dancer Devin Carney, is a choreographer and the artistic director of the Kansas City Ballet. Admittedly, I haven't thought about ballet much in my life, but now that I do think about it, ballet seems to me, to put it crassly, a mashup of an art form and a sport. And choreography combines creativity with physical prowess in a way we haven't heard on this podcast. On the face of it, dance might seem completely different than painting or ceramics. But when you get down to it, the artistic process is the same. The choreographer is creating a piece of work that he hopes will evoke emotion in the viewer. Only instead of paint and a canvas, he uses movement and a stage. When we sat down with Devin, he was in the midst of choreographing a new version of Romeo and Juliet. I felt so lucky to be invited into part of their rehearsal. The creative energy of Devin and the dancers just filled the room and bounced off the walls. What unique artistry. I saw Romeo and Juliet on opening night, and I have to say, it was magical. The choreography was beautiful, and the dancers did a stellar job of conveying all the emotion of Shakespeare's words purely through dance. I saw a fair few tissues out at the end of the show. Well, let's start at the beginning, where Devin shares his introduction to ballet. I was a winter sports kid, skier, also loved to play baseball and all that kind of stuff, had no idea what dance was, zero. Moved to New Orleans where there is no snow. I'm in trouble. I moved from my mother to be with my father, who had remarried for my high school years at which point I discovered that my stepmother uh, was a, a ballet teacher at a, a school in New Orleans, uh, Ballet High Cell. And a year went by of her going off to teach the ballet classes and me discovering gymnastics as an alternative outlet for my energy. I, I was very much a I-can't-stop kind of person. Sitting was a bad thing for me. It just didn't work. Anyway, one day she gave me the opportunity. She said, you want to come watch a ballet class? And I thought, well, why not? You know, what is this thing, ballet, you know? But I watched that class and was 
completely amazed at the athleticism. You know, I'm like, wow, what these dancers can do is incredible. And I thought, well, sure, I'll give it a try. The idea was that I was going to take ballet class to assist in my extension for my gymnastics because you got to be really flexible in gymnastics. And it morphed over the course of a year. It just sort of morphed that I basically went from a lot of gymnastics classes and a little bit of ballet. And a year later, I'm doing a lot of ballet classes and one day a week gymnastics. And the gymnastics is, is helping me with my jump for my ballet training. For many families, the one time of the year they see a professional ballet performance is during the holiday season. The Nutcracker has become as much a part of holiday traditions as decorating a Christmas tree. As the lights go down, the audience is swept away into a wintry world of magical toys, sugar plum fairies, and dancing candy. For many children in the audience, it might be their first theatrical experience. Meanwhile backstage, for many young dancers, it is their first foray into performing, and once they get a taste for it, most never want to stop. They asked me if I wanted to be in the Nutcracker. I didn't know any difference. I was like, well, I've been taking classes here for a couple months. Sure, why not? So I got on stage in basically a walk-on role as a reindeer pulling the sleigh in the snow scene. I don't remember any having any sort of nerves. I loved having a costume on. I thought that was the coolest thing. It, you know, it had antlers and it had harness kind of thing, kind of looked very Swedish, Danish kind of thing, you know, and we were kind of reindeer. But I remember pulling that sleigh out on stage, and it was like time froze. It was, if you fall in love at first, if you have a love at first sight experience, that's what I can equate that moment to. The world froze and went into this incredible slow motion event. The sleigh came out, we pulled it out, and we were supposed to stop. And we looked front, we looked to our left as we came in and we stopped. And we were pulling the the grand couple, the Potida couple, the Snow King and Queen. So we were very close to the spotlight. So my first experience on stage was in a spotlight, which was kind of... These are things I've never even thought about until talking with you about that. But <laughs> I just realized that because I very much remember looking out into the audience and seeing the dust slowly moving, drifting about, you know, th that little tiny bits of dust that you could see because of the spotlight lighting it up. And the music, it was a live orchestra, which was another incredible experience to have for my first time on stage. And to hear this really incredible music that is in the snow scene. And there was applause when I came in too. I didn't realize it was for the Snow King and Queen. It wasn't for me, but, you know, maybe it was, you know, for the whole scene that the audience was enjoying at that moment. But it was just immediate. It was like, wow, this is way different than doing forward walkovers or cartwheels or getting down a slope in the fastest possible time, regardless of your form, just getting down that slope. And the only thing that you measure your success by is the clock. And are you fast enough to be in first? So for me, this was a completely different athletic experience. And so it started off kind of as an another form of athletics for me. But that moment was just quite visceral and quite real and something I can still very much, as I talk to you about it, I can see it. And it's just like it was yesterday. 
It was the coolest experience. And I always draw back to that experience, you know, when I'm in the heat of trying to get things done or in my whole career as a dancer, just remembering how wonderful just that that physical response was that I could sense every nerve ending, every hair. It was a really cool moment. To be a professional dancer, you need to train vigorously. In fact, some dancers start as young as three and just never stop. Devin is a bit of an anomaly in the industry. He didn't take his first ballet class until he was 15. Then, having trained for only three short years, he found himself confronted with a decision. Go professional or go home. I love science and I love math and I wanted to be a nuclear mechanical engineer. That's what I wanted to do. Before this dance thing came along, math was my deal. I mean, I went through basically my three and a half years of high school training. And at 18, when I was finishing up my high school year, a friend of my teacher's was passing through town and watched me dance and offered me a job on the spot with uh, the second company of Boston Ballet. It's a very unusual way to get into the professional world. It doesn't happen that way very often. At the time, I just thought that's the way it happened. I come from, um, my parents are both college professors in the arts. My dad is, uh, was a uh, professor of art, uh, painting, and uh, drawing was his specialties. And he taught at Tulane University. And my mother's comparative literature PhD doctorate. And then I've got my stepmother, who's a ballet teacher, who is also had her time on Broadway as well um, in West Side Story and things like that, when West Side Story was first coming out, and, you know, that kind of age time period. But the point is, is that I had all this artistic sort of stuff around me, which I think really made a, a big difference. Mm-hmm. But my father being a professor at Tulane meant this, that I had free tuition. So when I graduated from high school, I could go to a private, very well-respected college in the South, Tulane University, which is known for its engineering as well as its arts uh, and medical. And that was right there in my hand waiting for me. And if I wanted to go to college, I had it. So I went to Boston. I said to myself, I said, well, okay, this is cool, whatever this is going to be like, you know. And there I went for a year and I just simply told the director, at, at, you know, somewhere in the latter part of that season, look, if you want me to be here, I'm going to need to be in the company next year. Otherwise, I'm going back to college. Yeah, I don't know how I would react if being now on the other side of that conversation, how I would react to that. <laughs> but, but, you know, that's what the dancers in the company told me. You said, you want a straight answer? ask a straight question. And and that's the director, Virginia Williams, who is the founding director for Boston Ballet. She was a tough New Englander, and she was definitely a mirror to my question with a response that was as equally straight. Mm-hmm. She just simply said, all right. She had an underbite and a very st- sort of like, you know, New England kind of accent with a drawl. It was kind of a funny accent. And she said, oh, Devin, of course you're going to be in the company next year. Don't worry. Devin Carney's office sits deep inside the Todd Belinder Center for Dance and Creativity, a beautifully remodeled brick building that once acted as the powerhouse for the nearby Union Station. Framed posters of past productions lean up against walls and photos line shelves, chronicling Devin's career as a dancer. 
As we discussed his past, Devin shuffled through stacks of photos looking for one particular shot. When he finds it, we see young Devin working with his mentor, the legendary, nay iconic, dancer, Rudolf Nureyev. Rudy was a very important person in my life. I was lucky to be, again, right place, right time. And he was quite exceptional because uh, from him I learned this thing called consistency. And it's critical in the, in the dance world. We, we toured together for about five years, went all over America doing his ballets. We also went to Europe dancing with him. But it was a really amazing time period to be around him. Rudy was in his early 40s when we worked with him at Boston Ballet. And I got to see him do Giselle, Swan Lake, and Don Quixote. You could call us the backup band, right? We were the doo-wop girls in the back, you know, basically. But I was kind of in a, just, again, I just didn't know any better, you know? So I wanted to be like him. I wanted to be just like him. You know, I wanted to do his roles. That was my ultimate goal. So sometimes that meant I would get a little bit in the way of, of him <laughs> when he was practicing on stage. And sometimes he'd just say like, you know, Devin, please don't, don't dance right now. I, just let me do this, you know. He had a, a big influence on me with the consistency thing because it didn't matter where we were in the world or how sick he was. And sometimes he was quite sick, a flu, a fever. There were shows he was doing, you know, with a very high fever that we knew he was really hurting. As soon as he made that transition from being in the wings, covered up by the wing, and coming out on the stage, his whole presence changed the moment he came out onto the stage. And that's what carried him through every performance he did, was this sense of connection with the audience that so critical in this art form. It's not just about steps. It's about a connection between me and you, and you, and you, and the other 11, 1,500, 1,600, 3,200 people that are in the house that you're dancing to. And how do you reach all those people? How do you do that? And he had that presence and that magnetic personality on stage that just was a pleasure to watch. It was quite impressive to see. And he was very nice to me. He would coach me, and he would always take a minute to give me a correction because uh, he saw that I worked hard. Mm -hmm. And I think he really respected that. Some dancers are content in being the conduit for another's work. They learn a dance, fill it with emotion, and perform it. Still others are drawn to creating the dance itself. The challenge of discovering the right steps to tell a story appeals to their inventive nature. Talking process with Devin, I had to ask him the age-old question, the chicken or the egg? Or in this instance, which comes first, the music or the story? I tend to go toward, I need music that's going to inspire me. Some people who are choreographers who have had the opportunity to create larger works, uh, the work that we just recently did of Val Canaparelli's called The Lottery, he thought of the idea first. It was about the story. It was about Shirley Jackson, who is the writer who wrote the story back in the 40s. And he was very inspired by this story and wanted to make it a ballet. And that's where he started. And then he finally found the right person that was commissioned to create a score. Uh, so I did do that once with a Dracula. I did a full-length Dracula. So I had the story. 
and I needed to find music that would meet the story. But the other full lengths I've done are pre-existing works. Giselle, Swan Lake, Sleeping Beauty. Now I'm working on Romeo and Juliet, Nutcracker. Okay, so these are all, stories are there, the music is there, so there's not really that thing to think about. Shorter works, for me, always music first. It, it has to talk to me. It has to, like, you know, I have to get, get in inside the music and really appreciate it and be inspired by it. Today, Devin plays the lead as the artistic director for the Kansas City Ballet, a dual role in which he mixes his creative background with commerce. Like a dancer performing Odette and Odile in Swan Lake, he assumes each role is needed. He pushes the artistry of the ballet company while choosing performances that excite the community. Kansas City, we've been in a unique situation, which I found, as I share with other artistic directors, is a very unique situation because they have not had many of the great classics performed here by their residential company. And that's been a really exciting process to introduce these great masterworks to the audiences. Does that mean that's, you know, that's all we're going to do? No, because I'm all about interesting world premiere contemporary works as well as existing established works that I know have stood up to the test of time. I mean, my desire is to offer a very large, broad range of different types of work that Kansas City has a chance to see because it's a great city and it deserves great art. We hope you enjoyed this interview with Devin Carney. To learn more about Devin's work and to see pictures from his studio and the rehearsal we attended, head over to helloatelier.org. Hello Atelier is a production of the Phonicalia Media Network. An easy way to help support this program is to subscribe for free on iTunes or Google Play. And don't be shy. Tell your friends about us and leave reviews on iTunes. Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram to see extras from the podcast and where you can live a little Hello Atelier every day.